Everybody get your Bibles out, get something to write with, get a journal. Okay, as you know, we've been in a series called Fight to the Finish where we're studying the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. So let's go there, find 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read one verse in chapter 4 just to start with, but we're going to kind of spend time in the third chapter. And as you, if you've been here uh, through, throughout this series, you know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, whom he loved deeply. And uh, as he wrote it, he was writing it with the mindset that these may be the last words that I will tell him. The Apostle Paul most likely knew that this was the end. He'd been in jail many times, and he was writing his young son in the faith, Timothy, to tell him the final ideas, the most important ideas that he could leave him with. If you look at chapter 4, verse 6, you can see the Apostle Paul saying this. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. What we get from this letter when we read it is a sense that Paul wants Timothy to finish well. It doesn't really matter necessarily how you start or where you start from. What is important is that you will fight to the finish. I think that's true for our church. It's true for One Chapel. We've started relatively well. We have people who are connecting and coming to Christ, and the kingdom is expanding. It's a wonderful thing. But uh, how we start is not as important as how we finish. And we need to do the things that are required of finishers. We need to do the things that are required of our character, and of our integrity, of working together, of challenging one another to fight to the finish. And so that's what we're talking about. And so as you look at chapter 1, where Timothy is encouraging, or sorry, Paul is encouraging Timothy to be faithful. He's encouraging him not to be ashamed. No, don't be ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed of my, the, the prison that I'm in. Don't be ashamed that I'm suffering. Because there's more going on here than meets the eye. There's something else that God is doing. God's word is not chained. It is free and it is moving and it is working in people no matter what kind of suffering, no matter what kind of challenges before us. And then he begins to tell him how he wants to reproduce. He wants him to reproduce in others who will, who will, who will then reproduce in more people. And that is the calling of our church. We talked about that last week. Um, and then he challenges him to be a workman to be one who studies, to be really prepared. And so then we, it brings us to chapter 3. And it, it really is a unique place in the letter because it, the letter kind of turns. In some ways, it takes a, a bit of a, a dark turn. And so I want to read that, and I want us to learn from it today. Will you join me in prayer before we read? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that it brings us, the light that comes into us. We're not just going to read with our minds. We're going to read with an open heart and with your Holy Spirit coming to illuminate us. Let it happen now. Let it happen as we share together. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 says of chapter 3, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I love that that's in there. It's like this big, long list of really horrible stuff and then disobedient to their parents. All you kids 18 and under, listen up. Ungrateful. If you look at the, word, the meaning behind that word ungrateful, it's a refusal to acknowledge that anything has come from God. The next phrase is unholy. It's in the same vein. It's a refusal to acknowledge that God even exists. Ungrateful, unholy, without love. Without love is not just saying it without nice feelings. It's actually articulating the kind of love that should be between parents and their kids, the kind of love that a family has. Paul is saying even families will be without love for one another. As I read it, as I think about our culture, we're only halfway down the list and already I can see how our culture lives this way. Without love, proud, abusive, it continues, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If you could look at Western civilization, we've kind of gotten to this place where we just want to just want to soothe ourselves. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If you look at this list, it's, it's a crazy list. Paul is saying things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Why will they get worse? I think it may be a lot like what happens when an, an athletic event where one team is really way out ahead of the other. If you're watching a game, you're watching a basketball game, you're watching a football game, and one team way out in front of the other, one team's losing badly, something happens to that losing team. They, 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 they pretty much have two choices. They either give up or they just go crazy and fight they start fouling, they start pushing, they start really just becoming just crazy with anger because they're so embarrassed. <laughs> I had one such experience as a young man. It was in high school, and uh, I attended a Christian high school called Covenant Christian Academy. And uh, I was one of four seniors in my class. I... I like to say uh, I was the top 25%. <laughs> it was a very small school, and um, there, was, there was pretty good education, but really not a very good sports program. And so uh, I think there was about 10 boys of age to play basketball, so <laughs> I started. <laughs> so I was a starting guard, and we played, I remember one particular tournament, we were playing Pear Park Baptist. Ooh, they were tough. They were big. They were like these burly men, man-childs. 
I was a skinny, scrawny teenager, and we were all like, this was awful. It was, it, I mean, the coach used to say, uh, they may be small, but they're slow. And, um, <laughs> these guys, these guys were like, they had, they had hair under their arms and everything. It was like crazy. So we, so we, we were, I remember being in this tournament and they were just whipping us. They were just, it was awful. We couldn't score. We couldn't do anything. It was just, it was so frustrating. And I remember sec, somewhere in the second quarter, we were playing basketball and we, we came over and huddled up and. It was just, you, you could feel the tension and just the anger. And instead of giving up, we just went nuts. We like, we were little skinny, scrawny guys just running all over. We were fouling them and we were pushing and shoving and we got technicals and it was, it was awesome. <laughs> we, we, we didn't win. They were much better than us. There was no way we were going to win, but we made them pay. I sort, of, I sort of think that this is the picture that the Apostle Paul is painting. That the enemy of our souls knows that he is defeated. And yet there is an anger, there is an aggression, there is a, a worsening of the atmosphere, the culture. The great theologian N.T. Wright, he said this, this is a great... ID. He says, people sometimes object that nothing much seems to have occurred with Jesus because the world is just as bad as it always was. Paul would retort that if anything, it's gotten worse. But he would add, this doesn't disprove the Christian claim, but rather reinforces it. That's how beaten enemies behave. It's an interesting idea. We're obviously wrestling with the idea that we might be in the last days. Paul thought he was in the last days, and yes, yet it's gotten progressively worse. We could spend time talking about how bad culture is, but that's not what I want to do with our time today. What I want you to see is what Paul was telling Timothy as he, as he coached him on how to handle it. Because there's this phrase, when you get down to this list, and you finish with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, then he adds this phrase that really astounded me. It, it confounded me a little bit. He said, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with them. Is he just talking about culture? Is he just talking about staying away from people who are bad? I, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's not just making, he's not just going through a list of really bad characteristics, bad attitudes, and saying, close yourself off as God's people and don't have anything to do with those people. In fact, I think it's much like he speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's talking to the Corinthian church. Here's what he said to them. Look, he said, I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindler and swindlers. Or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. <laughs> They're everywhere. It should not be surprising to us that people under the influence of the enemy would be acting this way. I think the challenge is, what Paul is challenging Timothy with, is to be careful not to have a form of godliness 
that denies the power of God that's supposed to be transforming you and I. That's what he's, that's what he's wrestling with. Look at how Paul finishes this statement. He says, verse 11, he says, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Now, he's not saying as soon as you meet them and they have some problems, you run the other way. In fact, in this letter, so interesting, he writes the first letter and they're dealing with some immoral people in their church. Did you hear what I said? In their church. Yeah. Yeah, if it's a real church and people are really being transformed, you're going to have some immoral people in your church. Okay, it's just the way it is. That's, that's not bad. That's actually good. That means we're healthy. That means we're actually making inroads into our community. Here's what Paul was saying. As you begin to work and walk on a journey of faith, that there needs to be the power of God to begin to transform people. People need to move from darkness to light. They need to allow the work of God to come into them. And as they do, I'm going to make them act differently. What he was challenging them on was hypocrisy. You know, Jesus, he, uh, he really was big on this and, and really fought with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. If you look at Luke chapter 12, verse one to three, he, he describes in there how they, are, they were like whitewashed tombs. They were nice and clean on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. In this particular passage, he says, you got to clean the inside of the cup and dish in order for the outside to be clean. He, he's, he accused them of just washing the outside and there was junk inside. I mean, our family, if I have kids, that means we have glasses laying all around the house. <laughs> Which means we've got junk in those glasses from time to time when they're not picked up. And then you take them, I make my kids wash the dishes, and it's possible that they can just wash the outside and they never get down to the bottom where all the gunky stuff is. Have you ever noticed that? There's all this gunk down there, and you got to get down in there and you got to scrub it. But you'll notice, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you wash the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will become clean. You can actually just, I call this the dishwasher principle of Jesus. This is the dishwasher principle. You can just wash the outside and it looks real nice. It looks real pretty. Then you look inside and, ooh, it's gross. But if you do the hard work of grabbing that cup, both hands, and you put one hand down on the side of it and you scrub and you scrub and you scrub all that stuff out and it comes out, everything's clean. The The outside automatically gets clean. That's what, we're, that's what he's talking about with you and me. That's what Paul is aiming at here in this letter. And he's saying that I want you to be careful that you don't just have a form of godliness and then deny its power. Now, think, think of what it looks like or what it feels like to have a form of godliness with no power. Like, why would you even want to do that? What, what is it, is there anything attractive about that? Is there anything good about, like, why would people even do it? Why would they choose it? Why would they, why would they choose to act all nice and pretty on the outside when the inside is full of junk? Why would you even need to do that? What a waste of energy. What a, a life full of conflict and turmoil. 
Well, you think about it. Think about it for a second. Why do they do it? They do it because they're afraid of what other people might think. They do it because they're too lazy to do the actual work of cleaning the inside of the cup. They don't want people to know they're lazy. Sometimes they do it for status. Probably none of you deal with that because you go to church in a commercial office building. So probably not too many status seekers here. So you, that's probably not an issue for you. But there's, there's something. Sometimes people actually, I think they do this because they're afraid. They're afraid of God. It's interesting. They don't know how. They don't know how to clean the inside of the cup and dish. I want to I wanna just suggest to you a couple of ideas that the Apostle Paul gives as they're working through it, denying its power. But first, I want to give you an illustration. This chainsaw looks really tough, don't you think? This chainsaw looks tough. I look tougher just holding it. <laughs> don't you think? This is a cool chainsaw, and, it's, and, it, and it really, I mean, there's some char- sharpness to the chain. Uh, we were checking it out earlier. And uh, some people, they, they live their Christian lives kind of like grabbing a chainsaw. And they think that just by having the chainsaw, everything's going to be great, and they can do what they need to do. But it's not true. Like if I go down here and I try to, I try to cut this, Look, if I try to cut, I, it's got a saw on it. It means it's a saw. What if I was trying to use it like this and try to cut the wood? That doesn't make any sense. That's that ludicrous. But what happens is some of us, we go to church. We even read our Bibles a little bit. But from t- and, and from time to time, we, we sense that God is near, but somehow there's no real power or authority or strength to overcome sin or to actually love our brothers and sisters. There's got to be something else that you begin to do. And I, I think the Apostle Paul begins to coach his young apprentice, Timothy, on how it works. Because he's describing, as he goes down that list, if you notice, you read through that list, notice what that list is all about. It's all about mistreating one another. It's about, all about being selfish and, and mistreating the people around you. What the Apostle Paul is saying is there's something about denying the power of God when you try to love God, when you try to love God and without loving people. You can't do that. You can't love God without loving people. There's something that's unleashed. There's a power from God that begins to be unleashed when when you'll take action, when you'll begin to serve other people, when you'll begin to engage. It goes to the core of what Christianity is all about. What is the core of Christianity? Well, it's got to be the two greatest commandments, right? The core of Christianity, here's, here's it, it is in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. It says, the most important one answer Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Did he leave anything out there? If you're talking about you, heart, mind, soul, strength, there's something he hasn't, he hasn't left anything out. It's all, it's all that you have. You're supposed to love him with. But then he adds this. He says, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. These two commandments actually work in concert with one another. Some people want the power of God before they'll act. What I think is, what I think God wants us to do is he wants us to act so that his power can show up. They can't seem to figure out how 
to control their sinful urges. I think one of the ways that you control the sinful urges of your life is you put your hand to something that will serve someone else. You actually begin to engage in a community of believers where you want to love one another and care for one another. You begin to share with one another. That's how you beat back the forces of the last days. The Holy Spirit comes into a person's life when they make a commitment to Christ. He comes in, he comes in, and he begins to move and work from the inside out, no doubt about it. But here's the thing. you got to be willing to use the power. If you're not willing to use the power, then you can't conquer your sinful nature. The power of the Holy Spirit. It's like this chainsaw. we got to turn it on. I want you to think about how the power of God works in you. I want you to consider how you might begin to act on it and begin to let it flow out of you. It does come out of you, but I think it begins to come out. It begins to work its way when you serve other people, when you begin to share with other people. Look what he says here. He says in verse 6, says they are the, here's, he's describing, describing these people. They are the kind who worm their way into, into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. So he's describing the kind of people who take advantage of others. They look nice on the outside, but they actually take advantage of people who are susceptible and weak. This is not a comment about women. This is, this is an example, it's an, it's an illustration of the kind of person who takes advantage of others. And so he, he says here, he says, just as uh, Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth, men of depraved minds who as far as the tr- faith is concerned are rejected, but they will not get very far because as in the case of these men, their folly will become clear to everyone. Now how does their folly become clear to everyone? How do you see right through the kind of fakeness and form of Christianity? Well, you begin to see the way they act. Now, if you know this, Jannes and Jambres were two men. They were magicians who stood there while Moses and Aaron were in front of Pharaoh. And Moses and Aaron, do you remember the story? They threw down the rod, the staff, and, and, and as it touched the ground, it turned into a snake. And then the magicians, where they were standing there, And according to Jewish tradition, this is uh, some extra biblical literature that Paul is referring to here. And so he's saying these two guys, these two magicians threw their staff down and their staff turned into snakes too. There's always a counterfeit. There's always a counterfeit to what God does in the heart of a person. But what happens is, and the reason Paul is using this illustration is he's saying just like that, it'll become obvious to everybody It'll become obvious to everybody what's really inside those people because what happened in the story with Moses is their snakes, Moses and Aaron's snakes, slithered over and swallowed all the magician's snakes. Swallowed them up whole. Then they picked them up and became a staff again. It was the power of God on display, all right? And so what we see here is Paul saying, look, I want the power of God to be on display in you. I don't want you to act this way. I want you to act the opposite way. God's spirit is in you. I want you to love each other. In fact, you can't really love God unless you love people. This is what the Apostle Paul said. Apostle Paul said this in 1 John 5. I'll just throw it up here for you really quick. It says, 
Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who, who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Having a form of godliness but denying its power is trying to love God without loving people. That's what this is. Can I just challenge you to look for ways to love other people? Can I just challenge you to every day be on the lookout? Because what's in you, what's in you from the Holy Spirit, what God has done in you, how he's rescued you and saved you, is for a purpose. And it's for his purpose, his power to be on display. Look what Paul says in the rest of the chapter. He says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Hey, 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 why was he in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? Why was he there? He was there as a missionary. He was serving people. He was caring for people. He was helping. God's power shows up. Now, did he, did he have to endure some persecution? Yes. He's telling Timothy, look, there, is, there are some difficult things you're going to have to get through. And that's why you need the power of God functioning and flowing in your life. He says in verse 12, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men... And imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise. I want you to take your pen. I want you to underline that whole phrase. That are the Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I'm going to give you two things to take home. One, if you want the power of God really flowing through your life, if you don't want to have a form of godliness and then deny its power, you have to embrace the gospel of salvation. You have to embrace the true gospel. You have to embrace the true good news. Not the legalistic guilt-inducing stuff you might have learned in your childhood. I'm talking about the work of Christ and his defeat of sin and death. He defeated sin. Sin no longer has to have control over us. And when you understand that repentance and believing in Christ is the secret to conquering sin. You receive the power of God to overcome. Now, I will tell you, if you want to keep sinning, there are bad things ahead for you. I mean, just the wages of sin is death. That's what Romans says. That's a bummer. Sin's not good for you. God doesn't like you to get involved in, in sinful behavior. It destroys you and it destroys others. But his plan, his purpose is to destroy sin in your life. And he's already paid the penalty and paid the price for that sin. You no longer have to pay the penalty of death. You are free. It's, it's so amazing to see somebody who's just, just figured that out. <gasps> You're kidding. Like, 
God came into my life. He just, everything feels so light, so airy and refreshing. It's so amazing. I can't believe what God's doing in me. I just feel free. It takes about three or four years if that Christian continues to grow before he's tempted to embrace legalism as his new philosophy. Now listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't obey the scriptures. We should. But obeying the scriptures and thinking that that's going to be the thing that allows God to accept you and love you is the wrong way to think. There is something, he, he loves you no matter what. What we have to deal with is the fact that we want a relationship with God. He wants a relationship with us. And when we sin, it breaks the relationship. He doesn't like that, so he settled it once and for all with Jesus Christ. He put all of our sin and all of our shame, he heaped it all on him. And as Pastor Brent read earlier, Jesus was crushed, broken, wounded for all of our failures, all of our transgressions all of our willful sins. So what you have to do is not turn the good news into bad news. All you have to do is turn to Jesus. Oh, a, little, a sin area shows up in your life? You, you're tempted? Listen, the Bible's clear. You're tempted of your own lusts. I mean, we're all going to have to wrestle that through. We're working to let the Holy Spirit lead us and guide us and, and be in charge of our lives, right? Okay, so we're working on that. We're working through that. But, but the gospel is good news. You do not have to pay the penalty for your own sins. Ephesians, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, what does it say? It says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves, so that nobody can boast, I'm so good, I'm so awesome. Man, God really loves me a lot. Listen, we confuse God wanting to use you with God loving you. He wants to use you. He wants to put you in positions of usefulness. The more you sin, the less he can do that. That's the, that's the trouble. But his love is firm. His love is complete. There is no doubt about his love and his embrace of you. That's the gospel. You got you to gotta, you gotta embrace that because that's what Paul says here. He says, you have known the Holy Scriptures. He's talking to Timothy. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for what? For salvation. You've got to protect this all-important thing that you've been given. This all-important gift of salvation. You've got to protect that. You've got to think that way. And then finally, number two. Surrender to a community committed to the scriptures. Notice the last verse of the chapter. Notice, so he's talk, Paul is talking about all these terrible things. All these imposters, they'll be shown for what they are. And then he says, but you, you know how my life works. You know your purpose. You know the, the way that love and endurance works. He says, you know the scriptures that make you wise for salvation. And then he says, finally, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. <sighs> God-breathed into the writers through their personality, through their experiences. He breathed into them and they wrote it. And what happens when you read it and a new idea comes alive in you? It's like, oh, I've never seen that before. I've read it a hundred times. Here it is. Oh, that's God breathing one more time. He breathes on you again and you becomes alive to you. You're like, oh, there it is. He breathes on. He says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful. I want you to take your pen and circle that word. It is useful. For what? Underline these words. For teaching 
rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You know, it's very difficult to train yourself. You have to have a lot of discipline. It's even more difficult to rebuke yourself. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> I was watching the NBA, right? I was watching the, 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 the playoffs, and they're on right now, and I'm, I'm totally into it. And, and I was watching all these players, and they make, they make an insane amount of money. I mean, they, they're, their bodies, their physical specimens, I mean, they're so incredible. I mean, they're really what we're watching. I mean, why do they even need a coach? Sometimes they think they don't even need a coach. They got so much money, they got so much celebrity, they got so much fame, they think they don't need a coach. But the truth is, the coach is the only one who can see what's going on on the floor. The coach is the one who helps them become a better player. Every person who trains for athletic activities or trains for military or trains in any way needs a coach. You and I have to have coaches. We have to have one another. We have to be willing to share in one another's lives. We have to be willing to submit our lives and, and connect with somebody else who's going who's gonna to help us become the people God wants us to be. That's what Paul's saying here. Scripture's God-breathed, it, but it's useful. You've got to use it. Somebody has to use it. It's not the Scriptures that does it to you itself. You've got to use it and, and apply it. And coach each other. If I could give you one final sentence. It's the reason we do connect groups. It's the reason we believe in community. It's the reason we, we believe in more than just an event here on Sundays. I want one chapel to be a place where you'll be accepted just like you are. Just as you are. Anybody could come in these doors and worship with us. We need to embrace who God sends us. It doesn't matter what their, what their background is. It doesn't matter what their religious affiliation, what their politics are. It doesn't matter. Nothing. We accept them just like God does. And then we challenge them to be all that God wants them to be. And we learn that here, but not alone, not by ourselves, not individually. We learn it in a community. We learn it together. You can't, you can't do it alone. It's too hard. You can't do it isolated. I know our, our culture says everybody loves God. They just don't like his people. <laughs> right? We have to resist that temptation. We have to resist the temptation to isolate ourselves, to be individualized in our spirituality. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a communal faith. So I want you to think about how God's power might come into you now. Close your eyes, bow your heads, and let's just take a moment for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. What might he say to you in this moment?